This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. I am extremely excited about today's guest. Jonathan or Jonasen Rosenblum, depending on where you read him and where you know him from, is really one of the great writers of the modern religious scene, at least in the English language. He's someone whose writings I have consumed in a variety of formats. His biographies, I've read quite a few of them, that he has undertaken covering great figures in recent Jewish history. And he writes a wonderful weekly column for Mishpacha magazine, which I read consistently. And I really enjoy his thoroughly researched and beautifully articulated perspectives on a variety of issues. He is not afraid to take unpopular stances and to take the community to task when he deems it necessary, as we will discuss in our conversation today. But he balances that, as we will also hear, with a real championing of the community, of the ultra-Orthodox community. He himself lives in Israel and Jerusalem. He was a returnee of Baal Teshuva, too strict Torah observance, along with a number of his brothers, all of very high intellectual caliber during the halcyon days of the 1970s and 80s. And he was a spokesman for the community in an official capacity for much of his career. So he has that unique balance of being a real insider and an advocate for his community while preserving a bit of a critical outsider's orientation. And that is all packaged together in the form of really solid and cogent rhetoric. As myself having a penchant for writing and a writing background, it's especially enjoyable for me to speak with people like Jonathan Rosenblum, as it was when I was able to speak with Rabbi Emanuel Feldman a couple of years back, and others in that category. And just a final personal note about this particular episode, in the intervening period between when we recorded, maybe a month or six weeks ago, and when I'm now releasing it, one of the Rosenblum brothers, who are referenced multiple times in the interview, passed away. He had been sick for some time. Rabbi Matasyahu Rosenblum. He was a brilliant scholar, someone who I had sort of tangential association with, but had a sterling reputation as someone who absolutely loved Torah study, and more importantly, loved teaching Torah to students from all different backgrounds. And so if there's any inspiration gleaned from this episode, we'd like to dedicate that to Matisyao Yered Ben Fival Yisrael. And speaking of dedications, a reminder as always that sponsorships are available. Email jewsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at jewsyoushouldknow, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jewsyoushouldknow with the letter U on Twitter. Please subscribe wherever you're listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. And please let others that you know do so as well so that this podcast here can continue to reach more and more people within the Jewish community at large. And now to our conversation with biographer, columnist, spokesman, and just all around thoughtful Jew, Jonathan Rosenblum. We are here with Jonathan or Jonathan Rosenblum, depending on your uh, language choice, a famous columnist and author, and uh, thinker in the Jewish world. How are you? Happy to be with you, Mari. It's a long time in the, in the making, but uh, good things come to those who wait. And uh, as we do with all of our guests, we're going to take it from the top. Tell us a little bit about your story. I know I've, I've read bits and pieces over the years and your many, many columns, and I know your accent also betrays your Chicago roots, but uh, give us a little bit of the uh, backstory. Okay. I mean, the truth is some of this will be coming out in a book. I'm publishing a collection of essays soon. We still haven't settled on a title, but the first section is autobiographical pieces. I mean, starting with my late father in any event. So I was born in Chicago in a hospital, which no longer exists, but it did its purpose because not only was I born in that hospital, but my wife was also born in the same hospital. Not only was my father from a small town in Western Pennsylvania, but her mother was from the same town. So you can imagine when we met each other. Oh my goodness. We only found this out 
I told her on her second or third date, you don't seem to be sufficiently impressed that you're going out with the grandson of the handsomest Jewish man in Sharon. And she said to me, Sharon? Sharon? What Sharon? I said, Sharon, Pennsylvania? Okay, anyhow, that's not the beginning <laughs> of the story. Anyhow, I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, Highland Park. Nice place to grow up. Nice country to grow up. So would that be Highland Park High School that you eventually went to? Yeah. You know, when I think about the sort of idyllic childhood that I have, it's, it's very hard to look at America even from a distance today and remember that it's the, it's the same country it once was. I mean, if people had political signs on their lawns, it simply didn't mean that you could no longer talk to them if they were not the same signs you would have put up. My parents didn't put up signs, but it's, uh, our lives were not obsessed about politics and, uh, and the nature of everybody else's politics and so forth. Of course, you know, that came to, a, in some ways, a rude halt with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I'm almost 70 years old, so I go I was going to say, I'd like to say that I remember that, but, uh, but I don't. <laughs> You're lucky. It was quite a frightening time. And then, you know, in my childhood, the seminal event, you know, the one where you say, where were you on that day? Or when the music stopped, it was the Kennedy assassination. And where were you? Well, I was getting into the car to go back to school for the afternoon when uh, I think we heard the first reports on the radio and we had a school assembly. I don't know if he had been pronounced dead by then, but I assume that he, I kind of think that he had. And we were watching TV after Sunday school on Sunday when, uh, when Lee Harvey Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby. So this, there was a lot of things to absorb in short order at that time. So high school was generally pretty good. I debated. Debate and the tennis team were my major activities. I had a calculus which proved that of the many people applying to Harvard in my class, it was probably the top-ranked high school in terms of national merit scholars at that time in, in Illinois, at least in our year. My kids asked me, I told my kids I applied to five colleges. I got into one, and they said, well, why was that, Abba? So I tell them, well, because every single college campus in 1968 went up in riots and flames, and each one of those, uh, that rioting was always led by a liberal Jewish kid from the suburbs. And uh, I was one of those kids. I got this, the dress code abolished in my high school my senior year. So I was prime fodder for having led the revolution. Instead, I went to the University of Chicago and read the great books and uh, have become more and more conservative with every, <laughs> with every passing year. As Interestingly, we're a family of five boys, four who became religious and one who did not. But the one who did not, also a Yale-trained lawyer. What was the Jewish background in your family? Was it a traditional? Were you involved in various Jewish causes? Yeah. Listen, if four boys from one family become from and live in Israel, it's not an accident. My grandfather was the president of the conservative movement in America. I spent at least one year at Camp Ramah, started Hebrew school when I was in second grade. My parents always told us the most important thing about us was being Jewish. We didn't know exactly what that meant or why that was the case, but each one of us at some point came off to Israel to find out. In my case, well, we were all in Israel numerous times, but I came after I finished, uh, I went to Yale Law School after college, and I spent a year in Israel, pretty much the next year in Israel. And um, that was a, a seminal year for me. I mean, there was the 1976 Entebbe raid. I had two brothers who were in the country. We were supposed to get together on July 4th, 1976 in the afternoon and in the morning I got on the bus and it was total mayhem havoc and no one understood I didn't know what not havoc but it was it, people were hugging and kissing each other I'd seen movies like this from in Hebrew school of the declaration of independence of the state of Israel but I my Hebrew still wasn't at a point where I could understand exactly what was going on when I finally did, I started looking around the bus and I started asking myself, why do I feel so much closer to everybody on this bus? When I get on a subway in New York City, 
I don't think about throwing out my arms and saying, we're all Americans. And if you do, they'll take you off to Bellevue and put you in a, <laughs> in a in white jacket. But here I felt like saying, you know, we're all Jews. And I started wondering, you know, why is it Yemenite Jew over there? And what do I have in common? And I realized that what we had in common is that each one of us was the product of 2,000 years, at least, of exilic existence where we held on. Wherever we were and whatever strata in the society we were and every ge geographical location and no matter what sticks were brought against us and no matter what, what the lures were to go over to the other side, we're only here as Jews because we're part of an unbroken chain of 20, 25, 30 generations of ancestors for whom there was something so important about their connection to God that they wouldn't give it up no matter how many pogroms and no matter how much the Christian or surrounding Christian or Islamic society honored Jews who came over to their side. So I thought, you know, I really should know more about this. I was going back to America to start practicing law. And uh, before I left Israel on that trip, I picked up a book called Faith After the Holocaust by um, Eliezer Berkowitz. Berkowitz? Eliezer Berkowitz. Eliezer Berkowitz. So I read it on the way to uh, Athens. And it's a short book, but it made a very powerful impact on me. And I decided when I got home, I would start keeping kosher. I'd only been practicing law for about six months, maybe less, probably less. And uh, when you start practicing law, I won the moot court in Yale the semester after Justice Sam Alito on the Supreme Court and the trial court competition. I was a star, but you're not a star when you start practicing law. Your secretary knows everything more than you. <laughs> you're dependent on other people. You're totally incompetent. Anyhow, I applied to rabbinical school at the Jewish Theological Seminary. After you started practicing law? Yeah. And uh, that was very, that was good because when I met my wife for the first time at a Jewish United Fund tennis night and told her I was a lawyer, she said she never would have married a lawyer, but I was going to become a rabbi. She was impressed with my idealism. <laughs> and uh, we came to Israel. I practiced law for two years. We came to Israel in preparation for going back to start at JTS, but we, we took our summer here as basically a honeymoon. And at some point during the summer, my wife said to me, don't you think if we're going to make Judaism the center of our lives, we should be around people for whom it really is the center of their life for at least a year? She wanted to stay, and, and we stayed. We're still on our honeymoon. She didn't get her trip to Italy, which had been promised to her on her way back. But, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend doing that now. I think the, uh, the COVID counts are pretty high over there. Yeah, well, they're high everywhere. So uh, in any event, I mean, on our first date, I knew, I told my dad the next day that I was going to marry her because she told me. She told me that she had spent a year in Israel after high school. And, uh, you know, I, I wondered how after I got back to Chicago, I was going to find a girl who was so involved with Israel and so forth. So I um, basically stayed in, I stayed, I, we went to Orsamech. I stayed in Orsamech for two years, two and a half. Then I went to learn by Radzvi Kuchelevsky and spent 10 years there. A little time in the mirror or some one Seder a day in the mirror for part of that time, but more or less 10 years in, in full-time learning. By that time, I'm 38 years old. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel I have some talents, but I'm not going to get to the top of the yeshiva world. That was clear to me. And uh, Rav Aaron Feldman, who you must know well from Baltimore, he had been my rebbe at Orsamach. He had been uh, the sandik for my oldest son. And he approached me one night in a minion, which I'd never gone to before. And this is how my whole life has worked out, these lucky breaks. And he said, he's just been appointed the head of the new English version of Yetad Neman. I didn't even know what Yetad Neman was. I'd been to B'nai Brak once in my life. And uh, he said, would I help him with it? I had helped him. I had edited a few books for him, The River, the Kettle, and the Bird, and uh, The Juggler. And, the and did you have a, a background in writing? Because it's, it seems like your background is much more in rhetoric and, and logic and debate and, and law. But obviously, you've become known as a writer. So, Well, look, at I published an article in the Yale Law Journal I had a very good English program in high school, meaning that we all did better in college than we did in high school. 
I remember the essay I sent into Harvard. I, my high school English teacher flunked me on it. Uh, <laughs> today, that would be a subject of a federal lawsuit. But uh, I didn't take it as if she meant to humiliate me. I thought that she wanted me to become a better writer. And I remember I brought her all my papers after my first year in college. And I said, I'm getting straight A's at the University of Chicago. She took a look at one of them and she said, but you don't write any better than you did in high school. <laughs> Tell like it is. <laughs> I thought I was a good writer. And Were you close with Leon Cass at Chicago? No, no. I'm not even sure if he was there at the time. I mean, Jeffrey Bloom, who was a, a good friend of mine, became a decade later, was a student of his. There were a lot of opportunities I passed up at the University of Chicago. I was just telling my wife about it. I knew what I was good in, and I took a lot of courses. I didn't get everything out of the university that I could have, that's for sure. And if Leon Cass was there, that was one of the big things I didn't get out of it. Yeah. But when it would not have been the only thing. Uh, but I loved college. That was a good four years for me. And I did a lot of writing. I wrote at least 120-page paper for my senior thesis and a 70-page paper for my junior thesis. I did a lot of writing. I preferred writing papers. So, And you get better. In law school, you get better. Most good lawyers are pretty good writers. I wasn't great, but I got better, and you get better and better. Writing, I always tell people, it's not fairy dust. You weren't born that way, and it's not like somebody sprinkled some magical fairy dust on you. I was always a reader, a big reader, and I took criticism. That's one of the things, if you want to get good at something, you better be prepared to listen to criticism and, and learn from what people have to tell you. I mean, I was editing the Yet Ted Naman. I, I, met, I started to mention, Rob Feldman left after 10 weeks. And suddenly I was the voice of B'nai Brak, to which I had been once or twice in my life. <laughs> and I was the voice of Rav Shach, who I had never met. And I never, I, you know, I was about Shuva. I was interested in learning. I spent my, I didn't know anything about Israeli politics, Israeli Haredi society, very little. I was living in a sort of bubble of my yeshiva and my learning. And it was a new world for me, to tell you the truth. For those unfamiliar, could you just explain a little bit what, what Yatad Neman was and is? Well, Yatad Neman was started by Rav Shach. The paper that was read by the Haredi Olam in, in Israel had always been Hamodia, which was more Hasidic. It was probably run by Ger Hasidim. still run by, probably run by Ger Hasidim. And at some point, Rav Shach wanted his own paper and was starting his own political party, Degla Torah. And yet Ted Neman came into existence at the same time as Degla Torah came into existence. And then they decided to start an English version. It was only three pages in English and one page in Hebrew. And Rav Feldman and I used to do it in one night. I mean, but then it got bigger and bigger. Under the, I, I did it for two years after Rav Feldman and got up to a pretty good-sized paper, unfortunately, most of which I still did myself, which... Uh, <laughs> I remember we discovered one of somebody you may know from uh, the writer Libby Lezebnik. Sure. And so I said to myself, oh, here's two pages I don't have to worry about every week. They're great. <laughs> a real writer. She really is a writer. And uh, we had, I started doing a column by Rob Leff, which was a great excuse. And uh, we're, we, gradually we built up things that it became, uh, and through that I also met two people who are going to become mentors for my life. Well, first of all, the Mavakrim, the people who had to censor the paper to make sure that the Baal Tshuva didn't make any terrible mistakes, were Rabarin Lopiansky, the Rosh Hashiv in Silver Spring, and Ravelli Mayor Klugman, you know, who's put out a dozen sforim, you know, different things on Rav Shamshin Lefoyle Hirsch, and remains, you know, they remain among my closest friends today and mentors to this day. And I also met Nelson Sherman from Art Scroll. Mm. And the person who probably was like a father to me was Rav Nissen Wolpen from the Jewish Observer. So when I left Yeted after two years, I got another lucky break. Yeted had been a lucky break. Rav Feldman came up to me and asked me, did I want to do this? Would I help him? And I remember at the time I got paid 
after I thumb and left and after it expanded to 16 pages, I was paid $1,200 a month. And I was so embarrassed because I couldn't tell anybody, you know, I was making, I was still learning in Colo full time. I did this, you know, at the end of my two years in Yetad Neman, my wife came to me with a pair of pajamas and she said, this is what people sleep in. Then she took me and showed me where my bed was. And she said, this is where people sleep. You know, I, I, would, I didn't have a computer. I had to take everything as it was written to a typist, get it back, proofread it, get it. You have no idea. It was like such a primitive operation. <laughs> what year was this? This is, this is in the mid 80s, late 80s? This is started in 1989. Yeah, like 1989 to 1991. So I met, you know, I met Art Scroll. And at some point, Ramnason Kamenetsky had been doing interviews for a biography of his father for many years, but it had nothing to come to fruition. And he wanted to show his donors something. So he had approached Art Scroll, could they find somebody to write an English version? This is long before making of a guttle. And the person who had been writing all the biographies at that time was Rev. Shimon Finkelman. And he wasn't available for whatever reason. And they asked me, and I, some of the interviews have been done in Yiddish. I don't speak Yiddish, uh, not surprisingly, but I don't speak Yiddish. And, uh, but I was very good friends with Rev. Yaakov's grandson, Rev. David Kamenetsky. And I said, I, I think I can do this anyhow. And uh, they let me do it. And fortunately, it was a tremendous. It was a new type of biography. I'm trained as a historian. I was trained, academically trained in history. And I didn't know what the formulas were for guttle biographies, so I wasn't subjected to them. And it's interesting Probably the person closest to Rabbi Yaakov in the world was Rabbi Zelig Epstein, the Rosh Hashivah and Shara Torah. And at some point, I was asked early on in the book, well, did you know Rabbi Yaakov? Like this was some kind of psul. And Rabbi Nelson Sherman took me to Rabbi Zelig and said, you know, one of the family members had said, I didn't know his father. How could I write about him? And I didn't, you know, I may have, it was three o'clock in the morning when he said that to me, and I may have been ungenerous and pointed out that most of the biographies in history have been written by somebody who didn't know the subject <laughs> of the biography. But Rav Zelig went far beyond that. Rav Zelig said, they consider something that's harmful is really good because you can listen to everybody without, a, without your, own, your own view of the matter. So you can absorb and you'll use whatever talents you have to create a picture which is not just limited to your own perspective, but you can share all these perspectives. And I found out how true that was, because when I wrote a biography of Rev. Moshe Sher, probably, I don't know, 15 years later, 10 years later, I knew Rav Sher, and I knew him well. And it was, a, it's an impe- it was an impediment in some ways. I, 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 I knew exactly what Rav Zelik had been talking about. So the Rav Yaakov was a big hit. And What's interesting about that book in particular is that I think among its genre, it's known as, say, slightly less hagiographical than, than some of its counterparts. Uh, you know, a little, bit, a little bit more comprehensive and maybe, you know, forthcoming about the, the total picture of, of who the person was, whereas other books in that, uh, in that genre tend to be a little bit more unadulterated lionizations of, of some sort. Well, if you look in the, if you look in the introduction to Reb Yaakov, I set out very clearly what my goals are. And it's interesting because I've, you know, when I've had disagreements later about presentations of certain figures, and I look back at that introduction to Rabbi Yaakov, it's exactly what I meant to be. I said, the views here are presented not because they happen to, re- they are necessarily the consensus views. It's because if Rabbi Yaakov was big enough to be have a, a biography written about him. He was big enough that his opinions can be heard. And I want to present him in all his individuality that he should, is exactly as you said, not as a formulaic figure. And I think that's what has really made my biographies to the extent that they've been well-received and Baruch Hashem they have, is that I'm trying to present each one uniquely. You can't present Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky like you present uh, Rob Dessler, certainly not like you present uh, Rob Noah Weinberg. I mean, they're just so, so they're light years apart. There's nothing. And even though 
the greatness is in common, but the, the differences between them is overwhelming. And if you don't do that, I mean, the, you know, in some ways, the best biography you sometimes see in Rev. Uh, Aaron Lopiansky's eulogies, the ability to find the, the Nikud of individuality. And I had taken a course on the development of individuality in college. It was one of the most important courses to me. And it was a theme that Rav Moshe Shapiro, Zechut Tzadik Lebracha, who was, you know, whose shirim I went to for 25 or 30 years, always brought out that each, you know, the, a person has to know who they themselves are and everybody has to be understood as an individual with a unique mission in the world. So did you get pushback on that? No, the Rabbi Yaakov was just like uh, people were just it was it, they, they understood that it was something different. And, uh, you know, the next book was a light one, uh, the, the Lieutenant Birnbaum. I didn't fully appreciate it at the time because it, I did it in six weeks. So I oh didn't fully appreciate what a remarkable life story that was, too. Then it was uh, Mike Tress, which was a different book entirely. But there's things about it that I think my favorite chapter in any of my writing is probably I found in the basement by Mrs. Tress file cabinet filled with letters from soldiers abroad had written to Mike during the war and in the, from the DP camps. And uh, I, saw, I knew that if I didn't do something with these letters, they'd never be seen again. They probably hadn't been seen since they were written. And they, they told a remarkable story about the Jews in the DP camps and their mistreatment at the hands of the Germans and hands of the Americans in many cases where the Americans were more interested in giving presents for their German girlfriends than they were in taking care of Stark. It was a remarkable story, and it was told through these letters. It's, you know, to me, as somebody who had a bent for history, anyhow, it was like, it's something that was, it was very exciting because I, I knew I had fallen on this treasure trove of, of documents that, uh, really original documents. So that, that was very exciting. You know, now I'm getting to tell the story of the book I'm finishing up right now is on Rameer Schuster, The Man at the Koto. And when you combine that with Rev. Noah Weinberg, even though I'm a product of Orsamech and not Asia Torah, you know, I've been able to take care of a big chunk of that, what I think was a magical moment in Kiru between 1970 and 19, the mid-90s. I mean, Rameer was remarkable because he couldn't speak. He was... Terribly Incredibly shy, introverted. awkward, yeah. and yet he brought 10,000 people to, to yeshivas in one way or another through his sincerity and through the siyata deshmaya that, he, you know, that HaKadosh Baruch gives somebody who doesn't have any ego, expresses himself in that way. So I'm able to write now about this magical moment in history of which my wife and I are a part, and we're now a family of, you know, eight children and between my mother has over 110 living descendants now. And she's still alive, Leon Harai. Is she still in Chicago? No, no. In Israel. My parents came to Israel, I guess, about 23 years ago. My dad passed away after 10 years, but he said it was the happiest 10 years of his life. So we always told my parents, you know, you asked a little bit about the family background. I said, you have nobody to blame but yourselves because you told us that being Jewish was the most important thing and we took you seriously. And I don't think <laughs> they ever had any problem with that. They really didn't have any problem with that. And I think when they look around and I think they had 33 grandchildren, they were all born. I mean, there have been 60 or 70 great grandchildren born since my father passed away, but it's nevertheless, he could pass away but knowing that there was continuity, that he had built something. Do you think that you've changed as a biographer? You've done all of these iconic works of these incredible, you know, seminal figures of 20th century Judaism. Have you changed it all? And have you, have you learned anything along the way? Well, to tell you the truth, I'm not sure that Rabbi Yaakov isn't the best, but let's face it. When I did Rabbi Yaakov, I had left Yad Ted Neman. I had nothing else on my plate. And, um, I lived with Rabbi Yaakov for nine straight months where I didn't, I wrote the book in nine months. Now it sometimes takes me nine years to write a book because <laughs> I'm writing columns all the time. I'm doing other things, but actually I look back in each one of them and I, because each one of them was an individual. Each one of them was completely different. So 
I think in that quest, I sort of remain the same, but I feel the full immersion in Rabbi Yaakov, the, the chance I had to, to literally think about him every waking moment, you know, obviously is going to make for a, a different kind of book. But, uh, you know, you do become pretty immersed. I see that each one of them in their time enters into me. My Divrei tour at the table are based on them. They're thinking, they're saying, they, I mean, with Rev Schuster less, but in different ways, they're very important lessons, maybe more lessons from Rob Schuster than anybody else that can be applied to each one of our lives. So um, I'm not conscious. Maybe somebody else, maybe you have to be outside of, maybe somebody other than myself who would look at them would, but I, I, I still think probably Rob Yaakov is as good as the most recent one. <laughs> well, outside of that one, do you have a favorite? Uh each one in, in, in a different, you know, each one has something that appeals to me. Each, I only wrote, I've only written about people who had something. I think somebody who read my writings would see that there's certain themes that, that recur, which are personal to me. Each one of these figures was obsessed with Kiddush Hashem, was con, obsessed with the image of from Jews and what we, what our behavior and the way we, in their different ways. The Kloisenberger Rebbe is one way and Rabbi Yaakov's another way. And, and Rabbi Dessler, I mean, Rabbi Dessler, the, the beautiful stories about him instilling this obsession with Kiddush Hashem and his Talmidim and teaching them, showing them, he, he would carry on discussions with the sash maker or the plumber in front of them and then ask them if they understood what the, the discussion was about to show them how he'd been trying to make a certain point for this person about how a Jewish rabbi behaves. Your favorite is always the one that you're working on then. But I would, Rav Dessler is very precious to me. The letters of, uh, you know, the, being the opportunity to go through all the letters of Rav Dessler, though there, I did discover there were many more that I didn't see at the time. But uh, I've been very blessed. It's a privilege to write it. But the new book that's coming out, the collection of essays, is mostly about unsung heroes, people no one has ever heard about. You know, neighbors of mine. I don't know what to call it, but a good title might be. How about Jews You Should Know? Maybe that. <laughs> you know, that's not so bad. I was going to. You know what? I'm just saying. <laughs> for, for royalties, I'll let you borrow it. The first title we thought of was Ordinary Greatness, which is really a good title, an appropriate title. But. You know, when you have a pieces on Rav Yaakov and the Manchester Rosh Hashiva and Rav Shach, the publisher wasn't eager to call it Ordinary Greatness. And then we thought about learn from every man. Because I say this book is really my tzavah. It's my ethical will to my children. It really conveys the message I'd like to leave them, which is, you know, learn from everybody you meet. And when you see the good about them, look for the good when you find it incorporated in your life. And then I say this is... You know, uh, Rabbi Huttner says the verse, Ish Lefi Mahalalo, which could be understood, a person is judged by how they praise him, but he understood it as a person is judged by how he praises, whom he praises. Tell me who your heroes are, I'll tell you who you are. This is my book of praise. And that's another title we're thinking of, Songs of Praise. Anyhow. Well, what's, what's interesting is that there's this commonality, as you said, there's sort of this thematic thread that ties together all of your biographies. And I think actually, as someone who reads your columns pretty uh, assiduously, I, I think a lot of the times similar themes emerge there. You know, these ideas of, of broadcasting the right image and a godly image in the world and, you know, being a light into the nations and, and even within our own nation. Why do you think those are such deeply embedded themes for you in your own, in your own character? Obviously, they, they must come from somewhere. Early on. Well, in part, it's the function of being a Baal Tshuva. I think it's one of the things that the Baal Tshuva contribute to the world because, look, we have a big investment in the world we've joined. You know, we bet the, uh, we bet the store on it. As I said to a friend of mine the other day, I can't believe how well it's turned out. I mean, as a young man, I expected to be the first Jewish president. So I, I had plenty of ambitions, but um, I just can't believe how well it's turned out. But as a Baal Tshuva, let's say I'm at an Aguda convention, 
I'm always listening to the speeches with two ears. One, the ear, my own ear, and how I'm hearing that as a person who's been a member of this community for 40 years, you know, in these cases, probably 25 years, and how my relatives and my parents would hear this. I'm always conscious of the fact that there's a much larger Jewish world out there. There's a much larger world. I'm not circumscribed. I spent a lot of time lately in correspondence with friends from 40 and 45 years ago from college and law school on the political situation today and things that, well, I know that we are in somewhat in disagreement, but to see if those friendships can survive and whether we can find common ground. And I think it's been well worth it. But I'm, I'm, I'm always conscious of another world. And I'd like to make sure that there are as many people as possible who have access to the world of Torah Judaism. And I see that a lot of my articles that in this collection end, if we could produce more Rav Shlomo Lawrences, who represented Aguda in the Knesset for 40 years, if we produce more Rav Aaron Lopianskis, if we would have more, you know, with many of these people, you keep thinking, if anybody would have a chance to meet them. I remember many, many, many years ago, early on in our marriage, we had a group of uh, girls from the Koto, probably brought, brought to us by Mayor Schuster. And uh, one of the girls said, ah, you talk about your rabbis as if they're supermen. And she said, my rabbi ran away with the president of the sisterhood. So I said, you know, you're, not, you're using the term rabbi, you're not talking about the same thing. You're talk, you might as well say rabbits and rabbis. It, it's, you're, not, you're not talking. I said, if I would go past Rabbi Aaron Feldman, who is not only my rabbi, was also my neighbor for a period of time in, in Malo Daphne. If I would go past his house and hear him raising his voice to his wife, I would be as shocked as you were when your rabbi ran off. But uh, I said, it's a, different, it's a different world. I want to convey something to that. One of the nicest, the most important compliments to me I ever got is from my father. When the Rabbi Yaakov book came out, he said to me, now I think I understand much better the decision you made and the decision your younger brothers made. I didn't start this project of collecting these essays. Somebody else did it and they came to me and they said, let's publish these. And the themes were all around lessons you learn along the way, most of them from within the community, but not all. I have Abraham Lincoln, I have Margaret Thatcher, I have George Washington as well, pieces that I've written on all of them. But I would like people to understand my cousins, and anybody else who I ever knew that if this is the world you live in, you can understand why a person made a choice to live within this world and to give up. You mentioned Abraham Lincoln. I just read an article that the uh, student government at University of Wisconsin voted unanimously to take down the statue of Lincoln on their campus. I mean, if I wasn't going to be president of the United States, I would have liked to have been president of the University of Chicago. I'd love University, I loved college. I couldn't have been happier. Actually, I think their pre their current president is actually one of the few iconoclasts in academia. That exactly right. I mean, that is true, but that doesn't keep the students normal exactly either. Uh, I mean, they do have a they have no trigger warnings. They have no safe spaces. They will not allow speakers to be shot down, or at least will take steps to prevent that. You know, Jonathan Haidt, these the social psychologists said to me, he was in my youngest brother's class at Yale, and uh, he said to me he would never give another penny to Yale and he would not let any child go there. And I asked him, well, where would you let a child go to school? He said, University of Chicago or Princeton, because Princeton has adopted those standards. At least you have Robert George and people like that at Princeton. You by Robert George, right? You could get an education based on the ancient question, what are the, the conditions of human flourishing? To ask the big question is, you know, I wrote last week, which I think describes the current college, as I said, students who come into school, they come into university thinking they have nothing to learn, will learn nothing. You know, uh, Alan Bloom in The Closing of the American Mind wrote this many, many years ago. It used to be that students came in with a sense of discovery, a sense of a world that was opening up to them, a world that, you know, that they were going to be amazed in so many amazing things. You know, he says that was, in many senses, a repressed erotic energy, but he said, now my students come in so desiccated, so used up. That passion, the sense of young mind blooming doesn't exist. It's really sad. 
but what's happening on the universities and the and the caving in of the administrators and the you know somebody a friend of mine wrote to me the other day he said he's worried about neo-nazis going around america i said you're worried about neo-nazis they're on the fringe what about the mainstream institutions of american society the press the universities that have been so corrupted Neo-Nazis, uh, there have always been a few crazies, and sometimes they could be lethal. But the mainstream institutions have been so corrupted and taken over that the recognition of what it takes for a society to exist based on different values and how people can, can work these things out together, that's what's been lost. I don't know why we're not seeing a mass aliyah to Israel. It's definitely seeing an uptick, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I want to explore your columns a bit, because I think what's interesting is that you have simultaneously been cast into sort of a, a role as public spokesman for say, the Haredi community, ultra-Orthodox community, whatever moniker we want to ascribe to it. But you know, on the one hand, you're cast as this sort of public apologist for the religious community or for the, the ultra-Orthodox community. At the same time, you are a bit of a, a critic and an internal critic and not afraid to raise problems and challenges and confront them head on. And maybe again, that's that outsider mentality. But how do you perceive your role as a columnist? How do you sort of balance these two aspects of what you are? The first part of that, I've given up being a spokesman for the karate community. I mean, I had for 20 years a column in the Jerusalem Post, and it was a Friday column. As the publisher told me when I came into the paper, I was the first Haredi in Israel writing in a mainstream media outlet. The people were canceling their subscriptions 10 at a time. He said, any writer who can get 10 people to cancel in one week is obviously having a very powerful effect. My first column appeared and this Haredi writer is, is citing Dante, you know, and the Divine Comedy. People didn't know what to make of it. So, uh, because I always had that advantage is that Whatever they knew about, I probably knew as well, if not better, than they did. I'd been well-educated. And that's why I, to see students not being well-educated pains me, because I do feel I gained a lot from that. And then, you know, I had an office that was supported by Aguda Israel of America, and which one that I had lobbied for to answer a lot of the charges which were being made at that time. But I gradually moved away from that role, by and large, because I don't want to be bound by it. I was able to bring out the best about the Haredi world in the Jerusalem Post because I always had the Mishpacha and Hamodia and other venues in which I could talk to the community straight on. In other words, I could not have done one without the other. Each one allowed the other. I wouldn't have just wanted to be a critic. I want to bring out what's beautiful about the community, and, the, and that's why I'm so excited. I said, the book that I'm bringing out now of, of essays is not the full gamut of human possibilities. All these people, in my mind, were extraordinary in one way or another. I want to, you know, I learned from Ruben Leuchter, too, another thing. You want to raise good, enthusiastic Jewish children. Let them see Hashem's world, God's world is a good world. If you want to do that, just point out all the good that's around them. Point out all the great things to look for it in everybody that you see because it's there. And I'm very happy with that role. I love bringing out people. You know, I also like to write about the Iranian nuclear deal and then a million other interests because I'm lazy and I like to read and I, uh, it's easier than learning Gamora and I'm better at it. <laughs> <laughs> but the two roles, each one of them that you note at one time, it's no longer true. I don't do too much of the apologetics. But it was because I had another venue in the Mishpacha that I was, and one was directed outward and one was directed inward. And they were both important to me. So nowadays you would say you, you really do view your role more as kind of an internal critic and someone raising the alarm on areas that need communal awareness or attention? You know, I, I would not like to be defined in that way. And, you know, I've also mellowed. I, maybe my biographies haven't changed. My columns have probably changed. The first year I started writing in the Jerusalem Post was a year in which one of the big issues was the recognition of reform and conservative conversions here. And I wrote about the subject a lot. And I could be very rough, especially because I came from that world. I remember there's a, 
There was one guy who wrote a letter to the Jews in Post. He said, you know, Rosenblum's columns makes me laugh because he writes about the conservative movement and he knows nothing about it. So I wrote back a column that was called Sorry, Charlie. His name was Charlie. Sorry, Charlie was from the old Star Kiss commercials. I said, I grew up in the biggest conservative synagogue in the country. My rabbi is now the provost of the Jewish Theological Seminary. My grandfather was the president of the United Synagogue, and I was on my way to becoming a rabbinical student there. So you see, Charlie, my problem isn't that I know too little, it's that I know too much. But a lot of friends said to me at the time, you're just putting people off. Don't be so sharp. And, uh, you know, you could learn from a Charles Crothammer. Look, at he survived in the Washington Post for 25 years. And I started reading him when he was still a liberal. But he had a way of putting things with humor, factual. He could put things so that everybody would want to read him, whether or not they were likely to agree with him. And that's really, I try to do that. Most of my columns are not internally critical. You know, the criticism usually begins with myself. It doesn't, <laughs> usually the best place to start your criticism is with yourself. And I'm not burning in the same ways that I was when I started at the Jerusalem Post. As I said, I'm almost 70 years old. I can't see giving up writing because I love it. People once said to me, how do you answer all these people? Week after week, you have to answer you know, all these claims must get you so angry. I said, get me angry. I get to write a column. You have to sit there and stew and get angry and have no way to express it. I'm, I'm able to be out there and exchanging ideas. And uh, no, I'd go crazy if I didn't have a column. The column is what keeps me sane. There were times I was writing three columns a week, one for Amodia. I think I was writing both Amodia and yet Ted and then and Mishpachat simultaneously and the Jerusalem Post. It keeps you sane, it, and it keeps you alive, you know. I remember when I was writing for the Yeted early on, so I had ideas all the time. Every time I would walk five feet, I couldn't dive in Shimon Esrei. Ideas were popping into my head all the time. When I started writing biographies, those kinds of ideas went away. I just dried up. And until I came back to the Jerusalem Post, which was the third great lucky break, first was Ravarin finding me for the Yet Dead Neman. The second was Art Scroll finding me for the Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky. And the third is that somebody printed a, a, a series of articles attacking the Balchuva movement in the Jerusalem Post. The only investigative journalism series, purported investigative journalism series they've ever done. But many of their readership, much of their readership is religious, and they thought they needed a response. And I went to a morning share with a guy who was then the news editor. Joel Rabibo writes today for Hamudia, And he said, well, my friend Rosenblum was this and this and this. He can answer them. And that went from one column to 20 years of columns. So um, that was the next lucky break. I mean, each one of them, you have to do something with the breaks you get. But people come to me, they say, how do you get involved in writing? I said, I don't know. I edited a few books for Aaron Feldman, but I never charged and uh, never occurred to me. And then he brought me into the Yetad Neman. You know, you see the Hashkaka only in retrospect. You know, at the time I was running an office, a media office for Agra Israel of America. So I'd always said, I wanted a job where I could read, talk to people, speak. And I also, I do like the speaking, though that's been stopped. Corona has killed my speaking career. That's pretty much over. And I don't know if it will ever resume. And suddenly I had a job. I was going out with journalists when there were still journal, you know, still newspapers that could afford a columnist. Even the Baltimore Sun in those days could afford a Jerusalem columnist. They don't today. And uh, it got to do all the things that I like to do. <laughs> so, Baruch Hashem, Hashem has worked it out very, very well for me. Very lucky. Very blessed. What's still left for you? I mean, you've done biographies, so many. You've done all these thousands of columns over the years. Is there a seminal project or a type of work that, that's still on the horizon for you that you have yet to tackle? I'd like to do, if Hashem will give me koach, I'd like to do a biography of Ramosha Shapiro. But, you know, my kids tell me it will be very tricky. <laughs> very tricky. They said, you've never worked with an Israeli god all before. Because what? Because his, his views were so unconventional and politically? My kids imagine that it will be tricky. And it, 
it would be a huge project. I mean, he has, I think there are between 16 and 18,000 shearing. Now, I wouldn't undertake to listen to all of them because I went to enough of them to know that I probably, it would not be an intellectual biography in the sense that I would be bringing Rav Moshe's ideas to the world. That's not, for me, there are much bigger, <laughs> a thousand people who would do that better than I, than I could do that. That wouldn't be me. I'd sort of like to explore all the different ways in which he was mashpia on the world through contacts in Russia, through the Bali Tshuva, from when he was uh, the Rosh Hashiva at Or Samath, through the groups, small groups of Tamadei Chachamim, through the Israeli Bali Tshuva, which he drew to him and he supported through his efforts in Kiruv. I heard him once say that we didn't come into the world to just move around the furniture. And I'd like to sort of explore the ways in which he didn't come to just move around the furniture. You know, now when the world has gone so, everything seems to be loony. Uh, everything, the world that my generation and I grew up in has simply disappeared. You know, I'd sort of like him to be here. We appreciate how much we miss him because there's nobody to explain it to us. He would give kind of a, an intellectual or theological framework for the trends of reality. Yeah. Well, I think there's one basic principle so there's two ways you can learn the truth. You can either apprehend the truth directly, or you can... Because I'll say that until you make a mistake in something, you don't really learn it. Sometimes the other way to learn the truth is to see that the falsehood is built to Sharia. It cannot go on like that. This will lead us into an impasse. You see it in so many areas in which things that look like they were headed in one direction come back on their own contradictions. And since I spent a lot of time thinking about university campuses, so I see that there, but in so many other areas where the, the self-contradictions become apparent, and this was something that he was always talking about. How does Avram take the schar shel kulam of the 10 generations that passed between him and Noah? Because they all erred in a way, and he learned from their errors, and because therefore he takes the schar of all of them, because he, he learned what was the truth from their errors. So it's a very useful perspective on the, on the world in which we live, that at some point you just reach a conclusion, this can't go on like this. Sanity must be restored. Sanity must be restored. Well, it's a good way to, uh, to end. Jonathan Rosenblum, author, columnist, speaker, at least sometimes, and uh, a real great Jewish model for the world. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure. I enjoyed it immensely. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.